It's Friday, August 18th, 2023. I'm Josh Rollerson, and this is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. Well, there's no getting around it. Fighting climate change means reducing carbon emissions, eventually to zero. Investing in zero carbon energy sources is a great start. But Pennsylvania needs an all-of-the-above strategy that also accounts for less clean energy sources and industrial activities that are pumping out carbon pollution right now. Carbon capture, utilization, and storage is one way to lessen the impact of burning fossil fuels. Normally, it's something that has to happen on-site, at the source of pollution, through built-in systems that contain greenhouse gases before they can escape. Anything that finds its way out of a smokestack without being captured, of course, will continue to accumulate in the atmosphere. But what if there was a way to claw back some of those emissions, essentially to pull carbon dioxide directly from the air? That's the premise behind direct air capture, abbreviated as DAC or DAC, and it's pretty much what it sounds like. DAC is not a silver bullet by any means. It's still in its infancy and it's not feasible everywhere. Even if it were, any negative emission solution is by definition gonna be less efficient and less cost effective than simply preventing emissions in the first place. Still, the technology has been advancing and there's reason to think direct air capture could make a difference if deployed in the right way. Our guests on this episode have been trying to figure out how that might work. They're contributors to a new report that looks at the most promising places for DAC deployment in the U.S. And Pennsylvania is very much on the map. Ryan Kammer is Senior Policy Manager at the Great Plains Institute, and Emma Tomley is a Policy Specialist. They join us now for a look inside GPI's Atlas of Direct Air Capture, published in March. Emma, Ryan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. We're here to talk about direct air capture, something that a lot of people may have heard about, but I don't know how uh, well people will necessarily understand the technology. So a little primer on how this this technology actually works would be a great way to start. Uh, What are the sort of the different ways of doing direct air capture and how is it different from other forms of carbon capture that people might be familiar with? Sure. Yeah. Uh, So so, so my name is Ryan Cameron. I'm the research manager here at Great Plains Institute. Direct air capture is, is one method uh, for lowering emissions, or really in this case, removing legacy emissions of, of CO2 from the atmosphere. Uh, so yeah, so typical locations that we, we are talking about carbon capture is really it's a capture versus removal. Uh, so those might be from, from you know, power plants, from, from ethanol facilities, other industries. In this case, we don't necessarily have a, a source of CO2. We just have the, the, the concentration of CO2 in the ambient air that we're removing uh, from. So typically when we talk about direct air capture, and we've kind of started to see even more uh, various technologies coming out, um, but typically we, we kind of separate them into two separate uh, types. We have low temperature direct air capture and high temperature direct air capture. Uh, for both of those, we um, typically have a, some sort of fan system that's bringing air through uh, the system, the, the direct air capture facility. At that point is really where they start to differentiate in how they're then removing the CO2 from the air that's being contacted. Um, with low temperature, we have typically a solid sorbent of some kind. Um, and then really where the name low temperature comes is that in order to then remove the CO2 from whatever kind of filter you have. So in this case, it's a sorbent of some sort. Um, 
to remove that, you are using a, a low amount of heat or a low temperature heat to remove that. And at that point, it's going to be very similar to various capture technologies that we are already looking at where you're, you're, um, you're going to uh, compress it, you're going to dehydrate, and you're going to transport and store where you need. A high temperature, as the name suggests, uses high temperature and typically with a liquid solvent. Uh, same thing process going on where you're contacting air with that solvent or in some some mechanism that they're, you know, each company is going to be doing that differently. Um, but but in uh, really then what you're using is you're using a high temperature. Uh, and when I say low temperature, high temperature here, it's it's like a, a roughly 100 degrees Celsius, you know, at the lower end for the low temperature, or, the, or I guess the, the number there, and then more like 900 degrees Celsius or you know closer to almost 2000 degrees Fahrenheit uh, for your high temperature. Um, so there is a, a pretty significant gap between the two, although again, we'll start to see kind of different technologies come up that might be in between those. Um, but essentially, you're just trying to remove that CO2 um, with some sort of filtering, you know, I'm, I'm using quotes there, filtering uh, system, and then you separate it from your filter so that it's a pure CO2 source that you can uh, inject and store. It's very tempting to say like, okay, so we, we have the ability to just suck carbon dioxide out of the air. Does that take any of the pressure off of the need to decarbonize elsewhere and, you know, lower emissions preemptively? Um, what, where, where does this fit into the, the, the broader strategy? Yeah. yeah, so direct air capture, it's really just one piece of the decarbonization puzzle. And we're going to need to use all the methods that we can to capture and remove carbon dioxide, both nature-based and engineered to meet our global net zero goals. Uh, some of these methods include bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, reforestation and afforestation, enhanced mineralization, and ocean fertilization. As for how DAC fits into this larger picture, as Ryan mentioned earlier, it gives us an opportunity to address legacy carbon emissions in the atmosphere, and it can provide permanent and quantifiable geologic storage. It can also be sited in any location that has the low carbon inputs it needs. It's not tied to the presence of a specific resource or facility. And it also offers a smaller land footprint than many other forms of carbon dioxide removal on a per ton basis and could rep replace natural sources of CO2 for industries that use it, like the food and beverage industry. So you just mentioned several other approaches to removing carbon, you know, negative emissions. Reforestation is something that Peck does a lot of work on. So that's something we're interested in. But when you look at the sort of the panoply of options out there, where does DAC fit in at, in terms of, you know, readiness? How, how scalable is it? How cost efficient is it? And what are the constraints on larger scale deployment? Yeah, so I'll start with the kind of the, the readiness and cost efficiency and scalability part. Um, I think the first answer to kind of where it fits with the other negative emission solutions is it really just depends. And, and you know, we at GPI and I think many, many people really see it as, as an all hands on deck approach that really all of these are going to have advantages in different parts of the country, in different parts of the world. And so what, what we wanted to do with the Atlas is just kind of pr provide a resource assessment for where direct air capture uh, might be best suiting, not, not necessarily best suiting compared to other uh, technologies, but where its technology itself would be best. Um, for readiness, it really depends on the technology. You know, we're, we're starting to see uh, facilities in the thousands of tons per year, uh, with we, and, but we also have multiple announced projects that are hoping to reach a million tons per year in the next uh, five to seven years or so, uh, which would really be a, a huge step and an exciting next chapter in direct air capture. Um, so because of that, I think readiness is kind of a, it, one of those, some, some of them are, are certainly ready to scale and some of them are uh, exciting opportunities that, that show other efficiencies that may be something that once they are at scale uh, will be, will be very attractive. 
for for cost efficiency, it really just depends on a lot of different factors. Um, as as I mentioned, you know, when you think of cost, you know, you can certainly talk about money, but there's also other costs involved, like the cost of land and the cost of uh, of of space. Uh, and then, as as I mentioned, the opportunities to use CO two that is uh, being directly removed from this from the atmosphere uh, in existing um, uh, industries where we can offset natural sources of CO2 is certainly another attractive opportunity. Um, and so really for cost efficiency, I think there are some challenges still, especially being a newer technology that, you know, it's certainly um, maybe on a, on a per ton basis is not going to always be competitive with other opportunities. And so if that's the case in certain parts of the country, that's fine. You know, we're, 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 we're pushing for all, all, all methods of, of removing CO2. Um, when you look at, at some of the opportunities that can really get low cost energy and and, and low cost, low carbon energy, that really is where it can become a, an, an efficient opportunity. Um, and then finally for scalability, as Emma mentioned, uh, one of the advantages of direct air capture is that uh, as it scales, it's expected to remain a, pre, uh, a pretty small land footprint. And so um, scalability can kind of change depending on uh, the technology, the way that they scale. One of them might just be a larger facility versus more small facilities. You know, both of those are scaling, but they're scaling slightly differently. Um, but in both cases, really, we're seeing that even at scale, their projected land use is still going to be pretty small, um, which I think is, is, is a good opportunity in certain parts of the wor world and country uh, to, to really have, have this be an effective form. As far as the constraints to large-scale deployment, technological, economic, regulatory, we can really improve on all of those factors to help support large-scale deployment of DAC. DAC's main technological barrier is that it's not as efficient as point source carbon capture because that CO2 concentration in the atmosphere is much lower. But we've seen a lot of innovation in DAC in the past few years, and we'll continue to see the technology improve with time. On the regulatory side, for all carbon management projects, including DAC, a state typically needs to assign a state agency to permit and oversee projects and establish rules for long-term geologic storage, ownership, stewardship, or liability of stored CO2, among other things. States might also apply for classics primacy from the EPA to take over permitting of these storage wells, which can help speed up the process considerably. For economic constraints, DAC is still a newer technology and it needs investment to scale up. While the Inflation Reduction Act increased tax credits for carbon dioxide stored from direct air capture to uh, $180 per ton uh, in saline storage formations, the cost of most DAC technologies are above that. So they're going to be relying on other methods for getting through, getting funds through either public or private investment. We've seen substantial federal investment in carbon management over the past few years through the bipartisan infrastructure law, which provides over 12 billion in funding over a five-year period to scale the carbon management industry and the and 3.5 billion over five years for the development of four regional DAC hubs. So that investment is promising for the development of DAC. So the focus of this report is where are the best opportunities? So first of all, how do you define that? What are your parameters for identifying areas that would be really good for direct air capture? And, you know, applying those parameters, what did you find? What what are the places in the United States that seem to have the most potential? Yeah, so I guess I'll start kind of with what, what we looked at for what would make 
our, our, for our resource assessment. Um, so there's really kind of two ways to think about what makes an area suitable. Uh, either the technology, what, what's needed to make the technology work, um, but there's also going to be a siting constraint side that uh, is going to be much more localized. It's going to be much more kind of, you know, what, what's available in the area, what sort of other opportunities or, or uh, questions need to be answered, things around, you know, public public questions and sentiment and, and, and uh, willingness or desire to do projects like this. We don't necessarily include that in our project. We're looking more at the resource potential. Um, and so really then when you're looking at what makes an area suitable for direct air capture from a technology standpoint, uh, it comes down to, to really four things that I think about. Uh, so the first is you have to have air. Uh, fortunately, we, we have that everywhere. Uh, but certain parts of uh, or certain atmospheric conditions make it uh, more optimal for different technologies. And so um, a lot of the studies so far have shown that uh, higher temperatures and, and higher relative humidity can help in the optimization of the technology. Uh, but there are some technologies out there that actually can work for the opposite. They're saying, hey, give us give us cold, dry air and we'll, you know, our technology works well. Um, so really, that, that's that's a nice advantage of, of, of direct air capture is that it's not it's not just one tool. It's, it's a lot of different tools or a lot of different uh, technologies that are falling under an umbrella that can work in different ways. Um, so so air, air in atmospheric conditions is the first thing to look at. Uh, the next is have, having some place to store or use the CO2. Um, so in this case, for our uh, our atlas, we looked only at geologic storage opportunities. Uh, there certainly are, are utilization opportunities for, for different things. That, as Emma has already mentioned, food and beverage would be one of them. Uh, certainly concrete is an exciting new, new area. Um, but in our case, we were looking at large scale, something that could be easily shown at a national scale. And there's a lot of national data sets around geologic storage. And so we started with that. Um, after you have those two, you, you need electricity uh, to power your facility, typically as part of like as running the fans and bringing the air to the system, um, potentially on the, on the other side about compressing and, and dehydrating you might have to use electricity there as well. Um, and then you also are going to have, so I guess for there, you're going to look at low carbon electricity uh, in different ways. This can be things like geothermal, uh, biomass, solar, uh, possibly diff different uh, different uh, forms of traditional power with carbon capture in anything where you're, you're having a, a low carbon electricity supply. And then finally, having a low carbon heat supply. Um, so in this case, the heat, as I mentioned earlier, is used to separate the CO2 from the process of a pure CO2 uh, for storage. And so in that case, we looked at things like geothermal, uh, as well as solar and biomass. Those All three of those can kind of be used for both electricity and the heat. Uh, we also looked at waste heat. Um, and then finally, uh, um, again, looking at traditional power with, with carbon capture as, as opportunities for your heat source. Um, but really, the, the value of direct air capture, as I mentioned, is that um, all of those can be varied throughout the country. Um, so I'll, I'll let Emma kind of talk about the different areas that we identified from that. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, after we took a look at all of those factors that Ryan just mentioned, we ended up identifying seven regions across the U.S. that are most suitable for the development of DAC hubs. These seven regions were California, Rockies and Northern Plains, the Permian, mid-continent, the Gulf, the Midwest, uh, and the Mid-Atlantic and Great Lakes, which this might seem like a, a lot of regions, but that's one of the key features of DAC, like we've been talking about today. There are many places that could be great candidates for this technology, and all of these regions hold great promise based on those factors that Ryan mentioned, although each one of those is unique. For example, the, the Gulf region has warm air and geologic storage and infrastructure. The Midwest has increasing low-cost electricity and the potential for waste heat recovery, those individual factors make each a great candidate for DAC. 
Focusing in on the Mid-Atlantic and Pennsylvania, where we're based, where do you see the opportunities? Like I know we have, the state is looking into currently the potential for geologic storage. There's a lot of, uh, you know, clean energy development happening, especially in, in and around the Pittsburgh area where I am. There's a push to to establish a hydrogen hub here. How do these pieces fit together and how, do, you know, how does DAC fit with this picture? Is there potential here? Yes, I'd say that there is a lot of great potential in Pennsylvania. If you take a look at the atlas and uh, look at that final figure, which shows our assessment of opportunities for DAC, you'll see that the majority of Pennsylvania has the resources needed for a DAC facility. Pennsylvania has great geologic storage options in many parts of the state, as well as offshore Atlantic opportunities. And we've also identified a significant number of facilities with waste heat recovery opportunities, which could be used as the heat source for separating the carbon dioxide as Ryan mentioned earlier from the solvent or the sorbent. As far as the hydrogen hub that you mentioned, the full proposal for that hub hasn't been disclosed. So we won't know for sure if the proposal intends to incorporate direct air capture, but there's certainly going to be opportunities for uh, DAC and a hydrogen hub as a low carbon fuel source in the DAC process. Tell me more about the energy need for these kinds of facilities. You mentioned waste heat. Um, I'm curious about that. Where is the waste heat coming from? And then beyond that, how do you, you know, how do you ensure a net negative impact on the carbon budget? If, if you need heat as part of this process, where are you getting that from in a way that contributes to climate goals? Yeah. So I'll start with the the how do you ensure you know that the the heat and power are are low carbon uh, or net negative. Um, so the uh, the first the first answer to that is like the actual insure like the insuring part is is part of a life cycle a life cycle analysis that would be done uh, for uh, depending on how the CO two is being uh, stored or utilized would be required to to show that you are uh, actually uh, able to receive the credit and that that's going to be a life cycle analysis as I mentioned which looks into the inputs of of, of your electricity and your energy uh, as well as the kind of the outputs of what what ends up happening for the CO two that's being uh, stored or used um, so. Regarding what we kind of looked at then to provide low carbon, then uh, it really uh, kind of depends on uh, the part of the country where you're going to be able to find the best opportunities. So in, in the case of uh, some parts of the country, we have geothermal opportunities that can be used uh, at, that are certainly going to be low carbon uh, that um, that can be used for, for a low temperature direct air capture. And then uh, we'll we'll see. You know, I, I think I'm 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 really interested to see kind of this this newer net power uh, work that's being done with uh, in the Permian uh, with Oxy. Uh, their their system is a newer type of uh, technology for for carbon capture with natural gas. That that the way that they're doing things, it seems like an interesting opportunity to to truly reach a a, a uh, net zero uh, heat source with natural gas. Um, so it's really, I think, a, a, a um, it's certainly a question and a challenge that that we want to make sure we're ensuring uh, is done properly. Uh, we, you know, we at GPI we're 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 fans of, of the uh, technology and we're fans of uh, the industry, but we also don't necessarily promote uh, in, individual projects. We just want to be, be able to create a, a system or policy and, and understanding in place uh, for growth in the area. Um, so we're hopeful that that as projects uh, come to fruition, they are done in ways that that, that ensure that 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 um, heat and electricity are, are low carbon um, opportunities. Um, as far as waste heat goes, uh, I think waste heat is, is an incredible opportunity. Uh, it's something that we identified opportunities as far as different industries. So whether that be um, 
various combined heat and power facilities, traditional power sources, uh, certain industries like glass and steel and, and um, certain parts of, of uh, other industries in the petrochemicals, they all kind of have parts that are using heat that obviously when they, when they, the, the, heat, the heat required is very high. And then as it's used, it, 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 um, it, um, the waste heat is lower than what was used in the beginning. And so now you have this heat that, yeah, you can't necessarily use for your uh, industry, but might still be usable in different ways. Uh, we see this in other, other areas. I know um, I've, I've worked at a power plant before that was sharing its uh, excess steam that wasn't no longer, was no longer usable for their system. They were, they were passing it off to a, a paper mill nearby. Um, and so it's not a, a new idea to be able to use waste heat um, it really presents new opportunities to just build on to existing infrastructure and existing facilities. I think the uh, questions around how this might conflict with energy efficiency goals is an interesting question. Um, you know, when you think about it, it's like, yes, we don't want to be doing something uh, that would uh, necessarily uh, impair or inflict the opportunities to uh, become more energy efficient. I think then it really comes down to uh, really pick, picking specific facilities where you know that uh, the likelihood of, of advancements in that certain technology or that certain uh, energy efficiency, uh, one, are, are probably going to be doable, but they're not going to be necessarily like drastically changing how the system operates. Um, but then two, that even if, so like say for example, um, you're providing, I'm just going to, to make up some number, like, you're, like I guess you're, you're providing X, X amount of waste heat and that gets cut in half. Well, the direct air capture could still use that second half that, that maybe it's not working at, at the full amount. You know, you've, you've increased your energy efficiency, but you still have waste heat. That direct air capture can still use that. And so now the opportunities are just making sure that from a cost perspective, uh, you're prepared for when you advance your energy efficiency on the facility, you still have opportunities uh, to continue doing the direct air capture, if that makes sense. This is all this conversation is happening at a moment when there is massive historic investment in clean energy uh, at the federal level. A lot of that is tied up with the administration's goals for environmental justice, for justice and equity broadly. Uh, how can we transition to a clean energy economy in a way that brings everybody along and lifts up the people that need it most? Is there anything particular about DAC that would support those goals? Yeah, no, I, I definitely think DAC can help support those goals. A great example is through the $3.5 billion federal DAC hubs program that I mentioned earlier. Programs like that one need to comply with the, the Biden administration's Justice 40 initiative, which broadly speaking ensures that 40% of the overall benefits of uh, those federal investments benefit disadvantaged communities. So project developers under the DAC hubs program must include an in-depth environmental pollution impact assessment, analysis of cumulative pollution, uh, and make sure that they're taking community benefits into, into the equation when they're building out their projects. I also think that DAC uh, as a technology can help support regional economies and particularly those that are historically energy producing regions, including formal coal former coal regions and oil and gas regions and provide an economic boost to those areas. What about downsides? Is there potential for negative impacts environmentally, you know, from this infrastructure, from, you know, this industrial activity, uh, land use changes? Uh, what are the risks? Yeah, of course. I think as with building any infrastructure, there's going to be impacts during the construction process and it, it should be de developers' utmost priority to reduce those impacts as much as possible. Uh, the one thing, uh, unlike 
retrofitting industrial and power facilities with point source carbon capture, a new facility is going to need to be built through DAC. So you're going to see an impact there. Uh, although opportunities with waste heat could lead to DAC facilities being built at current industrial and power facilities. I think the, the most important thing to take into consideration is that each project is going to have a different impact. It's going to have a different amount of transport infrastructure depending on how far they are from the geologic storage location or the, the use or unitization locations of that carbon dioxide. Uh, but once the facility and that associated transport infrastructure is built, there should hopefully be minimal environmental disturbance. Looking down the road a little bit, you know, obviously the goal is net zero or, or negative carbon emissions eventually. And this is part of a, as we talked about, a, a suite of solutions that all have to kind of work in concert. Do we eventually hopefully reach a point where it's no longer necessary? Does that kind of phase out as we transition to, you know, completely zero carbon energy sources? And then what? What happens after that? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly hope so. I, I don't think that necessarily happens in our lifetime. Uh, I think uh, so to start, you know, there's there's kind of two questions there. Uh, first is when will we actually reach a net a fully zero, not net zero. I think when we talk about net zero, we're talking about including things like direct air capture and other negative emissions to reach net zero, not just zero. Um, so I think the, the first question is when will will that happen? And right now, global emissions continue to to, to rise. They're projected to continue to rise. Um, that's going to continue for a little while. The longer that we push off other uh, opportunities to decarbonize, the more likely we're going to have uh, legacy emissions now uh, to to address. Uh, so just to, to kind of to wrap up the, the net zero part, uh, even the like the the, the International Energy Agency, they have various models where they project what what you know our system will look like globally uh, for energy supply. Um, and even though certain industries, things like uh, concrete and cement, uh, steel and and chemicals, certain certain chemical uh, facilities, even after adding a lot of different methods for decarbonizing organization uh, and uh, carbon capture, there are still other parts of the, the uh, process that make it very challenging to reach fully zero uh, emissions. And so the likelihood to include direct air capture, even in their modeling, uh, by 2050, they were including continued uh, direct air capture around 400 megatons a year, million tons per year uh, for, the, for the foreseeable future after that. And so I think the first challenge is reaching a fully uh, zero carbon uh, economy globally is, is is something that maybe isn't going to happen soon. It'd be fantastic if it did, but there's just a lot of challenges to reach there and reach that equitably. Um, and so second then is then even after we reach zero, uh, we still have the likelihood of, of legacy emissions to lower CO2 concentrations uh, to to really get us back to the, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere that we would like to have a sustainable future. And so I think that's also going to kind of extend the life of various uh, negative emissions that are going to be required. Um, as far as you know, I'm 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 totally fine hoping that someday we wouldn't need something like direct air capture because I think that means progress. But it's the same reason I hope that someday we don't need windmills. I hope that there's other things that we can use that are going to be more efficient than having these large windmills. You know, it's it's not it's not that they're bad. It's just that they're they're not perfect. Um, and so I think as far as what then, it's it's hopefully then we we have figured out all these other problems that that just mean that they're not necessary. Considering all these possibilities, we've talked a little bit about what's happening at the federal level to move it all forward. What about at the state level and to whatever degree you can localize it for my audience uh, and talk about what needs to happen in Pennsylvania to really take advantage of DAC? 
Sure. I think going back to a few things I mentioned earlier, there are, there are a number of things Pennsylvania can do to help support DAC and carbon management more broadly. First, they're going to need to develop that regulatory framework at the state level for, for projects. And while they're doing that, cultivate both industry and public support. I think the first, the two most significant issues facing Pennsylvania right now are the lack of what's called poor space certainty. So the ownership, unitization and long-term stewardship or liability of the the stored carbon dioxide and the locations where it's stored. Uh, And then also the certainty of a developer receiving uh, a permit to store that carbon dioxide. So something that Pennsylvania could choose or could choose not to do is get class six primacy to help speed up that process of permitting a storage well for that carbon dioxide. Last fall, GPI uh, worked with a nonprofit in Pennsylvania called Team Pennsylvania and the Pennsylvania Energy Horizons Cross-Sector Collaborative, which is a Pennsylvania-based group that includes representatives from industry, labor, government, nonprofit, and academia, that those organizations are all working together on decarbonization solutions for the state, including carbon management and DAC and hydrogen. And if you go take a look at their website, we also help produce a report that goes into a little bit more detail on what the state might need to do to uh, sort of succeed in the space. We will absolutely uh, link to that report as well as to your DAC Atlas for North America. Ryan, Emma, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for being on Pennsylvania Legacies. Thanks for having me. Ryan Kammer and Emma Tomley are with the Great Plains Institute, whose Atlas of Direct Air Capture is available via the link you'll find in the post accompanying this podcast episode on Peck's website at peckpa.org. It is one of several interviews we've done this year with researchers working on the science, technology, and economics of cutting greenhouse gas emissions in the Commonwealth and beyond. Those include conversations about Pennsylvania's potential for underground storage of sequestered carbon, about the environmental and financial cost of natural gas wasted by companies operating on leased public lands, and of course our back-to-back episodes last month looking at new economic forecasts for Pennsylvania as a participant in the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. All of that can be found along with news from PEC's programs and partners working on watershed health, reforestation, trails in the outdoor economy, and equitable access to the outdoors on the website. Again, that's PECPA.org. Be sure to check in for the next episode of Pennsylvania Legacies coming out just ahead of this Labor Day weekend. Hope you can join us for that. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>